0: But basically, what I've done is summarize two weeks of sermons in four pages. Here it reads front to back in four pages. You say, "Well, why couldn't you just say it that quickly <laughs> this past week and today?" And the reality is, um, I probably could, but we we wouldn't we'd be out here too soon. Okay, so <laughs> uh, turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Acts chapter two. Acts chapter two. We're uh, studying this. Section where the Holy Spirit has just come upon the believers in Jerusalem. Now, we know they had the Holy Spirit because they were saved, right? So uh, there was the Holy Spirit in these believers, but he is filling them as Jesus promised in Acts chapter one. He is filling them in order to do the work that he has given them to do, and that is to be his witnesses to the world. And we see such a dynamic impact of the Holy Spirit upon this church that it's just Luke has to stop for us and give us a glimpse of what it was like in those first days when the Spirit of God had filled and controlled all of the believers in the church at Jerusalem. In Acts 2.42, it says, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many signs and wonders were taking place through the apostles. And all who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray before we begin. Father, as we would pray before a meal, and we would thank you for your bountiful supply for us, and we would ask you to to use the food that you give us to uh, nourish us so, Lord, we come today and Thank you for the bountiful supply of your scripture. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us to wander through this world, but you have given us ample uh, thoughts from your heart to our heart, Your, your revelation, the very word of God that if we would feed upon it, our souls would be nourished. And so, Lord, we pray today that you would nourish our hearts, that as we study your word, that we would listen and hear the very word of God and that we would let it affect us. And so, Lord, teach us today and fill our hearts from your word. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Now, we began last time looking at these This profound effect that the Spirit of God had upon the people who responded to Peter's powerful proclamation in Acts 2. The very first part of this chapter has to do with Peter standing up and answering what was going on as the people were confused as some of the people that were standing around, the non-believers, were saying, well, they're just drunk with wine. I mean, people don't just talk like like babbling idiots, right? But it wasn't babble that was going on. It was actually languages and the people that understood the languages were saying, hey, we hear them speaking the mighty acts of God in our own language. How can this be? And Peter says, let me tell you how it can be. And he goes right back to the Old Testament and answers it out of the prophet Joel that the Holy Spirit had come and filled God's people just as Joel had promised and just as Jesus had promised he would do. And we have this wonderful sermon, and the people respond in verse 37, and they say, What shall we do? Peter says, verse 38, Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, this congregation of believers is filled with the Spirit, and wonderful things take place. Daily conversions dramatic changes in their lives as we're going to look at at the end of our time today. Favorable approval and acceptance upon, among the unsaved community. An insatiable hunger to learn God's Word. A continued devotion to prayer. A sense of God's supernatural presence and power. I don't know how it would hit you if all of a sudden you really sensed that God's presence was here. Luke tells us it can happen. It can happen. And we're going to look at that as we come through this passage this morning. The good news about this passage that I find is that the same spirit who produced all of these wonderful things in the hearts and the lives of the the people there in Jerusalem is still working in the church today right here in Illinois, right here in Rockford, right here at Rock Valley Bible Church. And the things which characterize the spirit-filled church back then remain as marks of a spirit-filled church today. And so we set out last time to, to look at these marks and ask just a simple question. How do we measure up? How do, how do we as a church, how do I individually measure up to what we see here? We began with verse 42, where Luke clearly lists four key effects that the Spirit of God had on those people. A devotion to teaching and uh, actually not just the teaching, but to learning. It was all of them were devoted to the apostles' teaching. So they were devoted to being there and coming and listening to God's Word. A devotion to fellowship. A devotion to remembering Jesus. And that's as far as we got last time. And so today we're going to pick up with this devotion to prayer. Devotion to prayer. And after that, we're going to move on to verses 43 through 47, which primarily speak of this, a sense of God's supernatural power and presence. Let's look first here at this devotion to prayer. And as we come back to verse 42 this morning, I want to remind you of how Luke began his thought here by telling us of the church's devotion. Devotion. They were continually devoting themselves is how he begins this thought. And remember what that word speaks of. Devotion speaks of not only a commitment and loyalty to something, but also an affection and fondness for it. Okay? So you have commitment and loyalty to something and Affection And fondness for it. In other words, devotion is a commitment to someone or something out of love for them. Devoted parents are not simply committed to raise their children because they have the responsibility to do so. Those are committed parents, but not necessarily devoted parents. Devoted parents also have a love for their children, which makes them fond of parenting. Even through the terrible twos, okay? Even through the tumultuous teens, you know, those years where you want to strangle them. You go, no, but I love them. I love them and I, I, I love doing this work. I don't know about you, but the, the teenage years were much harder for us than the, the two-year-old years. Much harder. A devoted husband is not simply committed to live out the years with his wife because he made a lifelong vow so many years ago. A devoted husband loves his wife. He's fond of his wife. He has an affection for her. He wants to be with her. He wants to be where she is. Rather be with his wife than out on the golf course with the guys. Rather be with his wife than doing anything else. In the same way, if we want to be devoted to the things that the early church was devoted to, we will not only be committed to them, not just the discipline in our life, we will also be fond of them. We will want to be there when the Word of God is opened. We will want to be there when others are fellowshipping around Christ. We will want to be there when others gather to remember Jesus. And today, we come back to verse 42 and it says, we will want to be there when the church gathers to pray. Now, I don't know about your church experience, but my church experience is that is the least attended time with the least interest from the people. A few, yes, devoted to prayer. But normally in the church, you gather a prayer meeting and it's the fewest number of few. Is that right? Is that your church experience? Peter Luke says that they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. I want you to notice something here, because I think that this is interesting. This is not the first time that Luke mentions their devotion to prayer. The first time, look back in chapter one, is as they were waiting for the day when Jesus would send his spirit upon them, just... As he promised, look at one verse eight, Jesus says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then verse 12, that's the promise. Look at their response. Verse 12, they returned to Jerusalem. Verse 13, when they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Verse 14, all these people that he mentions at the end of that verse were with one mind. What does it say? Continually devoting themselves to prayer. And at the beginning of chapter two, after this major prayer meeting, we read how the Spirit of God came upon them, empowering them to speak of Christ in in powerful ways. And now as the sun sets on that wonderful day that we call Pentecost, Luke tells us that the church remains just as devoted to prayer as it was the day before. And I find that really interesting. They didn't think, oh, the Spirit has now come so we can stop praying. Isn't that the way we often think? Isn't that the way we often function with this idea of prayer? We, we spend days, weeks, even months pouring our hearts out to God about something. And when He finally answers it, what do we do? Stop praying. We stop praying. But not these Spirit-filled believers in Jerusalem. Luke says they kept right on praying. They were devoted for the days and weeks before the Spirit came. And once the Spirit comes, they continue to be devoted to prayer. Why do you suppose that is? Why do you suppose Luke wants us to see this? Well, having thought through this, I think it has something to do with understanding their own weakness and their need for God's power. Do you hear that? I think it has something to do with understanding their own human inability and their need for the Spirit to make them able. Why do I say that? Well, there was a reason Jesus told the disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. There was a reason He told them. It was because they did not have the power to do what Jesus commissioned them to do. They did not have the power to, commission, to do what Jesus had commissioned to do. Jesus said, you will receive what? Power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And, and there's the connecting thought, you shall be my witnesses. They're not going to be powerful witnesses for Jesus until they receive what? Power from the Holy Spirit. You will receive power and you will be my witnesses. And what did they do in response? We just read it. They devoted themselves to prayer. Prayer for what? Maybe there were a number of things that they were praying for, but the text clearly indicates that they included this one request, prayer for the promised coming of the Spirit to fill them with power to be Jesus' witnesses. That says something about what we need as a church, doesn't it? Power to be Jesus' witnesses. Why? Because we're weak. Why? Because we're not bold. You know We don't have the power to change people's lives. We don't have the power to transform them. Some of us don't have the power to even open our mouths. We need this power. Luke tells us once the Spirit had come upon them, they continued to devote themselves to prayer. Why? Because I I think they had finally experienced the filling of the Spirit. And when they experienced this powerful presence of God's Spirit at work among them, they evidently sensed a need for His continually continual filling in order to continue the work as Christ's witnesses. The Spirit comes. They're filled with power. They speak. They see the effect. They say, we need more of this in our church. So where do they go? Not to the proclamation like we do. They went back to prayer first before the proclamation like we do. In other words, there's a vital connection between the Spirit's work in and through the church and the church's devotion to prayer. And I think that's something worth considering. Perhaps the primary reason we may sense a weakness in the church today is because we are truly not devoted to prayer. Samuel Chadwick said, There is no power like that of prevailing prayer. Of Abraham pleading for Sodom. Of Jacob wrestling in the stillness of the night. Of Moses standing in the breach. Of Hannah intoxicated with sorrow. David heartbroken with remorse and grief. I would add Elijah and the the fire, you remember, that came down from heaven as a result of prayer. Elijah and the drought that then turned to rain as a result of what? Prayer. 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 Chadwick said, such prayer prevails. It turns ordinary mortals into men of power. It brings power. It brings fire. It brings rain. It brings life. It brings God. If there's such clear examples, though, of the power God displays when people pray, like Elijah and Moses and Hannah and Jacob and Abraham. If all of these are so clear in the Scripture, why is prayer so hard for us? Why is it? Someone might say it's hard because we're products of an age that demand measurable activity and instant results. And prayer doesn't seem to fit this idea of measurable activity and instant results because it often appears just the opposite. Moments or perhaps hours of seeming inactivity as you're sitting silent before God, which produces days, even months of silence and waiting. So perhaps prayer is hard for us because we don't think the time spent really accomplishes much. Perhaps... But a devotion to prayer was lacking in the church long before the computer age altered our concept of timely results. J.C. Ryle, who was a pastor in England about 150 years ago, so it was before the Industrial Revolution, made this observation. I once thought in my ignorance that most people said their prayers and many people prayed, but I have come to think differently. I have come to the conclusion that the great majority of professing Christians do not pray at all. So why is prayer so hard for us? I think it's probably that we don't comprehend our weakness. We don't truly understand that we cannot accomplish anything for God except by the power of God of His Holy Spirit. Perhaps it's because it's a spiritual exercise and we're just so used to walking in the flesh. We're used to rushing in and attempting to do God's work in our own strength. And this text reveals something vitally important for us who think that way. And I'm one of those that think that way. I'm trying to discipline my life not to be that way. God will not show Himself powerful to believers who do not confess their weakness and ask Him for power. God will not. And His power will not be continuously evident in the church that does not continually ask to be filled with His Spirit. And so after the Spirit of God filled those believers with amazing power at Pentecost, they were back on their knees the next day and each and every day that followed, asking Him to fill them again and again and again. We need the filling of the Holy Spirit to do God's work, to accomplish anything for God. And God continued to answer their prayers. Gordy just read it out of Acts 4. You know, Peter and John were roughed up and threatened by the Jewish authorities who told them to stop testifying, okay? This is very interesting. They said, "Stop testifying about the resurrection of Jesus." What did Jesus said? You're going to be my witnesses. And I'm going to give you power to do that. And the authorities said, "Stop doing that. Stop speaking." What did the church do? The church prayed for God to give them the boldness to continue to speak. And I suspect that some of those believers recognized their weakness as Peter and John returned from prison all roughed up. And they said, they'll break your knees. These guys are serious. I don't know if they said they'll break your knees, but, you know, they said these guys are serious. They are very serious about us not speaking. So they dropped to their knees and they all said, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants would speak your word with all confidence. You know what God did in answer to that prayer? It says when they prayed, the place that they gathered was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with what? Boldness. Boldness. Ever wonder why it is that you just can't open your mouth to tell your neighbor about Christ? We always say, well, I can't think of what to say, don't we? <laughs> we always say something like that. Well, I just don't know what to say at the moment. It's probably not that. It's probably that we haven't been praying that God would fill us with his spirit in the first place. To give us the boldness. To give us the power to open our mouths. Spirit-filled church prayed for God's Spirit to fill them, not occasionally, but continually. And they gathered for prayer, not reluctantly, but wholeheartedly, because they were devoted to it. So let's ask ourselves some questions before we move on. How do we measure up? How do we measure up? Am I truly devoted to prayer? Devoted to it? By the way, the construction here is literally the prayers. In other words, it's either referring to the specific time when the church prayed, as in Acts 3, one, at the ninth hour, they went to the temple. But I'm not sure that that's it. I think that the idea here is they they, they, they went to the temple and, and the Lord wasn't able to take... They went to the temple to pray at the regular time, but the Lord wasn't able to, to start dividing them. Excuse me, the world wasn't able to start dividing them. The Lord kept them together in one mind in the temple. It could also refer to specific purpose for which they were all praying as in Acts 1 and then in Acts 4 where we just read that prayer meeting so I think the idea here is more they were devoted to the prayers what is the specific prayer? God fill us with your spirit so that we can be Christ's witnesses alright Ask yourself, how devoted am I for praying like that? How devoted am I to praying for the ministries of Rock Valley Bible Church? That they would be powerful ministries for the sake of Christ in his body. Do I have regular habits of prayer? Someone once said seven days without prayer makes one weak. Not one W-E-E-K, one very weak person. Do I regularly set aside time in my schedule to pray for God to work in and through our church to make us powerful witnesses? Am I devoted to our prayer time prior to the service the Gordia leads every week? Or am I one of the ones that drives in 9.30 or 10 o'clock? Someone said when a church is truly convinced that prayer is where the action is, that church will so construct its corporate activities that the prayer program will have the highest priority. That person wasn't talking about the leadership of the church saying, "Okay, we will make it the highest priority, so we'll do it first. It's talking about the people who are the church saying that will be my highest priority. Corey Ten said, is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? I like that. Is prayer your steering wheel? Is it the steering wheel The the church's ministries or is it our spare tire? When things start bumping along, we go, oh, we need to pray. When I pray, is my whole heart engaged? Or are my prayers simply routine, even rote? Do I just have the same words that continually come out of my mouth? Or is my heart engaged? I found this poem and I thought it was really interesting. Especially the last line. I want you to hear it. It says, I often say my prayers, but do I really pray and do the wishes of my heart go with the words I say? Is it engaged? I might as well kneel down and worship gods of stone as offer to the living God, a prayer of words alone. Is my heart engaged with God when I pray. Is prayer strictly a spiritual discipline to me, or have I grown fond of it? I want to give you a personal note here, because I think there's a difference, and I think we've got to get through the discipline in order to find devotion. A couple of years ago, I was convicted of my greater of a need for a greater fondness for prayer and actually fasting and prayer because I love to eat, okay? So fasting and prayer together. So I set a time every week to do it. And I want you to know that devotion to that did not come automatically. In fact, for nine months, it was discipline, 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 discipline. And somewhere along the 10th month, I began to hunger for it. It became devotion. It became a fondness of my heart. And I'm not fond of being hungry. But that time with God became a devotion. Do I love to pray as much as I love to sleep? I think that's a legitimate question. Because otherwise, we wouldn't just stay in bed. We'd get up and pray, right? Right? Do I love to pray as much as I love to eat? I think that's another legitimate question. I love to eat and I make sure that I get my meals every day. But do I make sure I get my time of prayer in every day? Do I truly believe prayer is important? Do I continually write down prayer requests and then forget to pray? Well, those are some questions, and I'll have those on that paper, then you can read through them again. But the church was marked by a devotion to prayer. Devotion. They were fond of it. They, they loved gathering together. Why? Because I think they saw the power of God that came through it as the Spirit of God filled them. And look what happened. Look at verse 43. It's fifth mark. And I'm going to use this to summarize verses 43 through 47. But just the first line I want you to read with me here. It says, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Literally, that says, I think this is very interesting. This is the, the sense of God's supernatural presence and power. OK, that's the fifth mark. A sense of God's supernatural presence and power. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Literally, that says fear was coming to every soul. It's a little bit different than everyone was feeling a sense of awe. Fear was coming to every soul. Now, it may seem, seem strange to you to say that the church that was all of a sudden filled with this Spirit of Christ, who we know as love and, and grace and mercy, was also gripped by fear but throughout the bible fear is the impression that commonly overcomes people when they become aware that they are in god's presence remember how elijah excuse me how isaiah responded to this heavenly vision of holy god sitting on the throne and he was caught up into this presence of god And he said, woe is me, I'm ruined, I'm undone. Remember how John, who had walked for three and a half years on the earth with Jesus and had communed with Jesus and had laid his head on Jesus' breast, responded to the sight of his exalted Lord in Revelation says, when I saw him, I fell to his feet like a dead man. Fear gripped the hearts of the people who were present when Jesus raised that widow's son back to life. Luke 7:16 said, fear gripped them all. And fear gripped the hearts of the people who heard how Ananias and Sapphira had been struck dead for lying to the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 6, 5. And fear gripped the hearts of the people when Jesus cast a legion of demons out of a single man. And fear gripped the hearts of the people when Jesus restored the legs of a paralyzed man. In other words, a reverential fear or awe should overcome our hearts whenever we see evidence of God's mighty work among us. We ought to be gripped. Something ought to make us stand up in awe of that. And Luke wants us to know that these believers kept feeling that. They kept sensing this awe because they kept seeing evidence that God's Spirit was at work among them. What was the evidence? Well, look at verse 43 again right there. Clearly, the power of God's Spirit was evident in the, mind, in the many wonders and signs taking place through the apostles. Okay. That would get your attention, right? You'd say, certainly that's where God is working. I see the miracle. But I want you to notice that signs and wonders and miracles were not the only evidence that Luke mentions here. His list of awe-inspiring evidence of the power of God, of the presence of God, does not end in verse 43, but continues on in verse 44 and 45 and 46 and 47, where we find description after description of how believers were being transformed by the filling of the Spirit. Look what it says. Look at look at the construction here. It says everyone kept feeling a a sense of awe and right there and many signs and wonders were taking place through the apostles and all those who believed were together and had all things in common. That is supernatural transformation. You don't just get a group of people together and have that happen. We're going to look at that in a minute. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might. You know, if you came up to the elders of this church and said, hey, by the way, you know what? I know we need a building someday. I'm going to sell my house and just give it to you. I know we need to support missions. I'm just going to say, do you know what they would say? (laughs) What would they think? That just doesn't happen, does it? It doesn't happen in the church here in America. And it didn't just happen. That's a a change in these people's lives. They were continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. And, 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 and And he goes on and tells us all of these things that were happening. And so there was a sense of God's supernatural presence and power in this spirit-filled church. And it wasn't simply because signs and wonders were taking place at the hand of few, but that God was transforming the lives of many What kind of changes? Well, there was an extraordinary unity among people of ethnic diversity. There was sacrificial generosity. There was an unceasing desire for fellowship and undiminishing gladness and praise. I don't know about you, but I understand that. Sh- that would be a change in my heart because I go up and down with the seasons of life. Unusual favor among all, all the people. Listen, for a short season. I want you to catch this about Acts 2.42 because a lot of people will try to tell you that if we could just get back to the signs and wonders and powers and miracles, then the people of this world would see that there really is power in the church. There was, there's been books written about that. It's about the signs and wonders movement. If we could just get back there, our gospel witness to the world would be just as powerful. Listen, for a short season, the presence of God was seen through the miracles of the apostles. But... Even at that time, even then, as still today, the presence of God's spirit is seen through the transformed lives of believers. And I believe that's a greater evidence in the church today. In fact, Luke gives us more of that than he tells us about the miracles here. So transformed lives are evidence of God's work among his people. And I wish we had time to examine all of these, but we don't. So I want to look at one, just just the first one, extraordinary unity. And as we consider this remarkable change that the spirit of God produced in these people, this extraordinary unity, I want you to consider the importance of his filling in your own life. Not only for this kind of unity at Rock Valley Bible Church, but also for this kind of fellowship that he goes on to describe and this kind of generosity that he goes on to describe and this kind of worship that he goes on to describe and this kind of gospel witness that he goes on to describe all this remarkable stuff coming out of these people. Look at the uncommon unity. Look at verse 44 and all those who believed were together and had all things in common. Now, I want you to really think about this for one second. How extraordinary, extraordinary this unity was. And I want you to just think through two things. When you think of the crowd that suddenly became the church, whenever we see evidence of God's mighty work among us, we ought to be gripped. Something ought to make us stand up in awe of that. And Luke wants us to know that these believers kept feeling that they kept sensing this awe because they kept seeing evidence that God's spirit was at work among them. What was the evidence? Well, look at verse 43 again right there. Clearly, the power of God's spirit was evident in the in the many wonders and signs taking place through the apostles. Okay, that would get your attention, right? You'd say certainly that's where God is working. I see the miracle. But I want you to notice that signs and wonders and miracles were not the only evidence that Luke mentions here. His list of awe-inspiring evidence of the power of God, of the presence of God, does not end in verse 43, but continues on in verse 44 and 45 and 46 and 47, where we find description after description of how believers were being transformed by the filling of the Spirit. Look what it says. Look at at the construction here. It says everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and right there and many signs and wonders were taking place through the apostles and all those who believed were together and had all things in common. That is supernatural transformation. You don't just get a group of people together and have that happen. We're going to look at that in a minute. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might. You know, if you came up to the elders of this church and said, hey, by the way, you know what? I know we need a building someday. I'm going to sell my house and just give it to you. I know we need to support missions. I'm just going to say, do you know what they would say? (laughs) What would they think? That just doesn't happen, does it? It doesn't happen in the church here in America. And it didn't just happen. That's a a change in these people's lives. They were continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. And, 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 And he goes on and tells us all of these things that were happening. And so there was a sense of God's supernatural presence and power in this spirit-filled church. And it wasn't simply because signs and wonders were taking place at the hand of few, but that God was transforming the lives of many What kind of changes? There's an extraordinary unity among people of ethnic diversity. There was sacrificial generosity. There was an unceasing desire for fellowship and undiminishing gladness and praise. I don't know about you, but I understand that. That would be a change in my heart because I go up and down with the seasons of life. Unusual favor among all, all the people. Listen, for a short season... I want you to catch this about Acts 2.42 because a lot of people will try to tell you that if we could just get back to the signs and wonders and powers and miracles, then the people of this world would see that there really is power in the church. There's been books written about that. It's about the signs and wonders movement. If we could just get back there, our gospel witness to the world would be just as powerful. Listen, for a short season, the presence of God was seen through the miracles of the apostles. But... Even at that time, even then, as still today, the presence of God's spirit is seen through the transformed lives of believers. And I believe that's a greater evidence in the church today. In fact, Luke gives us more of that than he tells us about the miracles here. So transformed lives are evidence of God's work among his people. And I wish we had time to examine all of these, but we don't. So I want to look at one, just just the first one, extraordinary unity. And as we consider this remarkable change that the spirit of God produced in these people, this extraordinary unity, I want you to consider the importance of his filling in your own life. Not only for this kind of unity at Rock Valley Bible Church, but also for this kind of fellowship that he goes on to describe. And this kind of generosity that he goes on to describe. And this kind of worship that he goes on to describe. And this kind of gospel witness that he goes on to describe. All this remarkable stuff coming out of these people. Look at the uncommon unity. Look at verse 44. And all those who believed were together and had all things in common. Now, I want you to really think about this for one second, how extraordinary, extraordinary this unity was. And I want you to just think through two things. When you think of the crowd that suddenly became the church, he wants you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. You can't do that on your own. You need the filling of God's spirit to do that. He wants you to walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. He wants you to walk no longer as everybody in in northern Illinois, in Rockford, in Chicago, in America walks. He wants you to walk not in the futility of your mind like that. But you need the Spirit of God, the filling of God's Spirit to do that. He wants you to be imitators of God. You need the Spirit to do that, right? And walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for you. He says, you were formerly darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. How do you do that? By the continual filling of the Spirit of God. So when we speak of being continually filled with God's Spirit, we're talking about being continually controlled by him. We're talking about being continually submitted to his will. We're talking about continuously depending upon his power instead of just moving out and doing things in our own strength. We're talking about continuously asking him to change us and conform us into the image of his son, of God's son, Jesus Christ. So that we might think and act and walk as he walked. In fact, it's not a coincidence and Paul even puts that in Ephesians 4 where it says, put off the flesh and put on Christ, right? How do you do that? But by the power of the Spirit. Believers who have the Spirit of God do not automatically discover the kind of transformation that Luke describes in Acts chapter 2, verses 43-47. through 47. We need the filling of God's Spirit to experience it. And we need the continual filling of God's Spirit to sustain it. And this Spirit-filled church witnessed the supernatural power and presence of God through transformed lives. Not just through miracles, but through transformed lives. So, how do we measure up? How do we measure up? How do you measure up? Do you see this same evidence in your life? Do you recognize your need for the power of God's Spirit to change you? Or do you just spend your Christian life walking in the strength of your own flesh? It's possible. Ask yourself, do I continually ask God to fill me, to enable me to lay aside my fleshly self and empower me to put on the character of Christ that I need? Am I specific about the character of Christ that needs to become more evident in my life? His patience for my impatience as I'm driving down the road. His gentleness for my harshness with my children or my spouse. His humility for my pride as I go to work every day. His righteousness for my sinfulness. His peace for my anxiety. His forgiveness for my bitterness. And the list can go on and on and on and on and on. Some of the most awe-inspiring evidence of the presence of God's Spirit in this early church was the supernatural transformation of ordinary people into the image of God's Son. Ask yourself this, am I willing to give testimony to the church of how the Spirit of God is transforming me and making me more like Christ? This is what I used to be. This is how I am today. That is the Spirit's work in the church. He wants to transform you into the image of Christ. And listen to this. People will stand in awe when they see it happen. They will stand in awe. Because that's what happened in the early church. Everyone was filled with awe as they kept seeing the Spirit of God through His filling transform these people into the image of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I do pray today